you can turn in your Bible to Exodus 39 as you're doing that. Uh, some of you may have noticed a few faces that are missing today. This weekend, uh, we had our annual uh, deacon retreat. So uh, elders and deacons got together uh, just for the sake of uh, having rest and fellowship together, uh, spent some time uh, talking about spiritual disciplines, uh, going over uh, a little bit of church business. But let me just uh, let me just say for uh, and and I hope I'm saying what you already know um, that Edgewood is richly blessed with the men that God has given us in our elders and deacons. Richly blessed. Many of them are still there. They're coming back this morning. It was so enjoyable, I was tempted to stay and just let someone come up and pre Exodus 39. Let me, before we begin to read in Exodus 39, let me just show you, uh, just by quick glancing at the pages, where we are in the storyline as we're coming to the very end of Exodus. Last week, we were in chapter 35 through 36.7, which remember starts off with a command as the, now it's time for the people to actually begin to build the tabernacle. In 25 through 31, God was giving Moses instructions. Rather than moving right into the construction of the tabernacle, you have the, uh, the idolatry and the golden calf, which interrupts everything and threatens to uh, wreck all that God has done through the sin of the people in chapters 32 through 34. God pardons and forgives his people, gives them the assurance that he will remain with them. And now, when we come to chapter 35, it's time for the work to begin in actually putting the tabernacle together according to the design that God had given Moses. That new phase in the story begins with God commanding the people to keep his Sabbath. So even though you're about to do this work that I've commanded you to do, don't forget that more important than the work that you do for me is the work that I do in you. You will keep the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The Sabbath day is a sign that it's the Lord who sanctifies them. And then following on that, much of the rest of the passage that we had last week were the people collecting the materials that they needed for the tabernacle. Everything from fabric to metals to, uh, to gold and silver. And so in the passage that we're in today, we're dropping in on a portion of the next phase where after they've collected all of the materials that they need, starting in 36.8 and following, the people now are actually going about fashioning the furniture items, the tent, the clothing, and everything, and pulling it all together. And then chapter 40, the very last chapter in Exodus, is when Moses actually takes everything that's been made and actually sets it up, sets everything in place, erects the tabernacle so that now... God can come and dwell with his people. That's where we'll be next week. So in this section of 36, 8 through, say, chapter 39, the people are making everything that the Lord has instructed them to make. We're going to drop in at chapter 39 and start with me in verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to go from verses 1 through 5 to verse 32 and finish out the rest of the chapter. 39.1, moreover, 
From the blue and purple and scarlet material, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place, as well as the holy garments, which were, which were for Aaron, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the ephod of gold and of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. Then they hammered out gold sheets and cut them into threads to be woven in with the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and the fine linen, the work of a skillful workman. They made attaching shoulder pieces for the ephod. It was attached at its two upper ends. The skillfully woven band which was on it was like its workmanship of the same material, of gold and of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, skip with me to verse 32. After talking about all the clothes that have been made for Aaron and the other priests, then we come to verse 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was completed, and the sons of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. They brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, its boards, its bars and its pillars and its sockets, and the covering of ram skins dyed red and the covering of porpoise skins and the screening veil, the ark of the testimony and its poles and the mercy seat, the table, all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the pure gold lampstand with its arrangement of lamps and all its utensils and the oil for the light and the gold altar and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the veil for the doorway of the tent. The bronze altar and its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils, the laver and its stand, the hangings for the court, its pillars and its sockets, and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the equipment for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting, the woven garments for ministering in the holy place, and the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. So the sons of Israel did all the work according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And Moses examined the work, or we might want to read it as, and Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. Just as the Lord had commanded, this they had done, so Moses blessed them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes so that we would see wonderful things from your law. If it is not for your assistance to give us the ability to see and the ability to hear what you have provided for your people, it will be for nothing. Father, give us not only the ability to comprehend and to understand mentally what it is that we read and discuss, but also, Father, to love what it shows us about you and your purposes for your people. We pray that this would work in our hearts in such a way that we would find it impossible not to praise you and to serve you with joy and gladness. In Jesus' name and for his sake, we ask all of this. Amen. So chapter 39, once again, on the heels, the last part of, a, of several chapters that are talking about the people actually doing the construction work. They gather all the materials, they do the construction work, and chapter 39, we didn't read all of the verses for the sake of time, but what's interesting about chapter 39 is that chapter 39 actually spends 
the bulk of the time going over the materials or the, the, uh, the work that is made for the clothing for Aaron and his sons. There's almost an entire chapter that's given to recounting the fact that the clothes for the priests have been made in exactly the way that God wanted them to be made. One of the things that stands out in chapter 39, and it's impossible to miss, well, unless you're just sort of snoozing your way through the reading. We skipped over most of it, but let me draw your attention to it. All right? This is by way of repetition so that you know without any question or mistake what one of the major points of emphasis are in this passage. Track with me. Kids, if you're in the service, you may want to count how many times this phrase is repeated. All right, so start with me in chapter 39. Look at the end of verse 1. They made all the holy garments which were for Aaron just as the Lord had commanded Moses. The end of verse 5. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses. The end of verse 7. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses. The end of verse 21. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses. The end of 26. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses. The end of verse 29. Say it with me. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Right. You, you see the pattern? All right. You have to be pretty thick not to see it. The end of verse 31. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then in 32, when it's moved off of the clothing, for the, the priestly clothing in particular, to going back to just the whole work of the tabernacle and the clothes, we still have the same repetition. Verse 32. Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 42, so the sons of Israel did all the work according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And again in verse 43, just as the Lord had commanded, this they had done. But we're not done. Chapter 40, follow along with me. Chapter 40, verse 16, according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. Verse 19, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 21, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 23, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 25, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And in verse 27, and in verse 29, and at the end of verse 32. It's something like 18 times in two chapters we're told either the people or Moses did just as the Lord commanded. Eighteen times in two chapters. Somebody is wanting to make sure that we don't miss the fact that they did just as the Lord commanded. That's what we call obedience. This is important. This is one of the reasons why working through the scriptures passage by passage consecutively 
looking at exposing God's word is so necessary because we tend to be very myopic or very narrow in our focus. We have we have certain um, tendencies or pre or dispositions that tend that cause us to gravitate towards one passage or another, or one command or another, or one attribute or another. And if we just simply gravitate towards those passages that we find most comforting and most settling to the exclusion of other passages that perhaps are not so exciting for us or perhaps a little disconcerting even, we run the risk of making out of God or making out of the Christian life something that God never intended. Case in point. The very first thing that we ought to consider when we read chapter 39, if there's nothing else that we pick up on, is to say that chapter 39 makes it abundantly clear that God's people hear and obey. We need passages like this. We need passages like this to be, laid, to be laid next to the passage that we looked at last week. When you go back to chapter 35, for example, and you see that the very first thing that God says before the people ever start to collect the materials, before they ever start to construct the tabernacle, and we read that God commanded his people to rest. Oh, who doesn't want to rest? I love the sound of that. Yes, give me that blessing. Give me that rest. Give me that relaxation. Some of you find it very difficult to rest. You need to hear a passage like that. You need to hear that God is calling his people to rest in him and what he provides so that you are not mistaken in thinking that you create your life in Christ, that you sustain it. But for others of us, we can run too far in the other direction, and we can so emphasize the fact that we rest in Christ that we become these holy resting bumps on a log that don't do anything. God wants his people to know there needs to be a way in which we rightly order what God is teaching his people. Israel, church, you need to know, I am the one who has redeemed you. I have taken a people who were no people and made them into my people. I am the one who provides for you. I am the one who guides and directs you. I am the one who gives you your rest. I am the Lord God who sets you apart and sanctifies you. The Lord does that. But precisely because the Lord does that, that new work that God has done in his people is a work that will inevitably be seen in the lives of the people that he's creating. Do you, do you hear that? In other words, obedience is one of the distinctive, essential marks of anyone who would claim to belong to God.
Yes, the people are going to rest. Yes, the people are going to know that they are special, not because of what they do for God, but because of what God has done for them. But in part, out of sheer gratitude in response to what God has already done for them, that becomes part of the motivation in obeying and doing what God has called them to do. This is not Old Testament legalism. This is not life that is characterized by law-driven, austere people. This is what it means to be alive to God and to be dead to sin. It's all through the scriptures. At the end of Matthew, when Jesus is about, has finished his work, his death, his resurrection, and now he's about to ascend to the Father, go into all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Do you hear that overlap with Exodus and with what Jesus says here? All that the Lord commanded Moses, the people did. Jesus tells his apostles, all that I have told you, you go and relay, and everyone who follows me is to obey all that I have commanded you to teach them. Obedience is so essential to what it means to be a follower of Christ that you cannot rightly claim to be a follower of Christ if you are not obeying Christ. Look at Ephesians 2. Go ahead and flip there. Hold your place here in Exodus. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Most of you already know this. Nothing new, but it bears repeating. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one would boast. You hear that? God saves you. God does this. This is a gift. You don't do it. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them are we saved by good works no are we saved for good works yes in fact the evidence or the proof that we have been saved by a sovereign work of God is the fact that we live differently than the way that we lived before turn over a few more pages to 1 Peter chapter 1 start with me in verse 2 and then we're going to skip from verse 2 to verse 14. Listen to the way that Peter frames it. He addresses these aliens who have been scattered around, out from their homeland, who he says at the end of verse 1, are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by, <coughs> excuse me, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood chosen to obey Christ. And then over in 14, chapter 1, verse 14, 
as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you will be holy for I am holy. When God creates a people for himself, by his power and grace, he creates those people to display his majesty and his glory by their obedience. Israel could not claim to be in right standing relationship to be healthy, to be focused, to be walking with the Lord if she merely heard what the instructions were but never set about actually doing the work of making the, temp of making the tabernacle. Why? Why? Why, why is it so important that they obey. We've, we've already answered one question why, right? Because obedience is the marker or the distinctive mark of those who belong to the Lord, right? They've been made new, and so they look different. They live new lives. That, that is summed up by, by one word, obedience. But there's also something to be said for part of the motivation at work here. Why are the people building the tabernacle at all? Why? What is the purpose of the tabernacle? Is the Lord concerned that they have too much time on their hands, that they're, they're, they're bored, there's not much to do out in the wilderness, so I'll give them a craft project that they can all do together. Build a little bit of camaraderie and a, and a communal spirit. Is that what the Lord is doing in the instructions to build the tabernacle? Why has he instructed his people to build the tabernacle? Tell the people to construct a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. Why would you be motivated in Exodus 39 to build a tabernacle? What would be your primary motivation? God would be your primary motivation. You're telling me, you're telling us that if we take these things that God himself has already given us, the riches of Egypt, we give that to the Lord to make this portable dwelling place so that he can live with it. You're telling me if we do that, we get more of God? You'd be a fool not to do it. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 14. start just just to back up a little bit start at verse 15 John 14 15 if you love me you will keep my commandments why would a Christian why would a follower of Christ obey Christ according to Jesus because you love Christ 
that should be reason enough. Oh, but God is so good. So good. So good. Look down later in chapter 14 at what Jesus says in verse 23. Jesus said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. It is enough reason to obey your Lord and Savior because you love him. But oh, the riches of the reward that God gives his people by way of obedience to say that the more you obey, the more you enjoy me. I want that. I don't want it near enough, right? My obedience quotient is nowhere near where it needs to be. Yours probably isn't either. But more and more, I want that to be my heart's desire. I want it to be my plea. I want to obey, not just simply because he has told me to obey. He is my king. I want to obey because of that, because I, but I want to obey because I want him. And the fellowship that the Lord offers to his people by way of obedience is sweet. Better than anything that we can taste or enjoy in this life. And a foretaste of the life to come. If you're here this morning, let me just say a word even to Christians. If you find that you are somewhat flat in your Christian life, flat line or dull or numb, one of the things that you may want to do is to ask a very simple, basic question. Am I walking in obedience? It should not be a surprise to us that if we are not following Christ in obedience, that we would not enjoy him the way that we can. Sin will cloud your vision. It will obstruct your view of the beauty and the glory of God. You cannot be neck deep in sin with all that muck and mire over your face and truly see God for who he is and marvel at his wonder and at his beauty. You cannot enjoy your relationship with your Savior and with your King if you are not listening to his voice and walking in light of what he has told you to do. If you think that you are wiser than he is, that you know better, you will never enjoy the fullness of communion with God if you persist in walking in disobedience. It may simply be that your life, your spiritual life, is not what it can be simply because you are not obeying Christ. And for all of the promises and for all of the joy that is offered you, I would commend to you on the authority of God's word that you have opportunity to gain 
more in your communion with Christ by obeying him. It will not be wasted time. It will not be wasted effort. And it will work to your unending joy. We are fools when we think that we will find more joy pursuing our own ends than pursuing Christ. If there's nothing else that we get from Exodus 39, we ought to at least get that because of the repetition. So the Lord's people are marked out by the fact that they not only hear what the Lord has said, but they hear and obey. A second thing that we could say that we notice in chapter 39, this is perhaps not as, um, not as explicit as the first point, but it is interesting, is once again going back to the repetition. The repetition, the bulk of the repetition in chapter 39, seven of the, I think, ten times that the phrase, as the Lord commanded, the people did as the Lord commanded Moses, seven of those ten are in reference to the people being obedient to make the garments for the priest. If you go back and you look at the two previous chapters, when the people are actually making the tabernacle itself and the furniture, only one time is it said, in all the things that they make, that they did this according to what the Lord had commanded Moses to do. Now, it comes at the end of chapter 39 to say, well, in all of this, both in the furniture and in the clothing, they did all that the Lord commanded them to do. But there is a unique way in which there is emphasis being placed on the fact that the people are doing what the Lord commanded them to do in the clothing and in the apparel for the priest. Why would unique attention be given to what the priest is going to wear. We've hit this any number of ways through Exodus. Because if the people don't have a priest to go between them and God, they don't have the benefits of the covenant that God is bringing them into. This covenant relationship depends on them having a priest that God will welcome in and accept into his presence and having a priest who can go from God's presence out to them to minister and to serve them. If they don't have a priest that God has appointed and will accept, they don't have anything. For all intents and purposes, the people will never see the inside of the tabernacle when it's erected. Right? Do you realize that? They'll come into the outer courtyard. They'll approach where the altar is to bring their sacrifice, to hand it over to the priest. But it's the priest who takes the offering. It's the priest who lays it on the altar. It's the priest who goes through the required motions and the ceremony and the ritual of that. It's the priest who will go into the tabernacle. And it's only the high priest who will go into the very room where God is said to dwell. The people will never see that. You know who they will see, though? They'll see the priest. Which is one of the reasons why so much of what God commands the people to do for the priest's clothing is almost a repeat 
of the things that he said to do with the curtains and the fabric of the tent itself. Because the people will not be able to see the place where God dwells, he wants to see the man who comes from the place where God dwells and to recognize him as having been with God. The clothing is important. The clothing says something about what this priest is going to do for the people, that he comes from God to the people so that they can know God and goes from them, from the people, back to God so that God can hear word of his people. God finds it important to dress and to fit his priest for the ministry that he is going to take. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 10. The people, by the Lord's command, are preparing clothes for the priests so that they will be equipped and ready for the work that God has appointed them to do. Hebrews 10, verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, who is the he, by the way? The, the son, Christ, comes into the world. Comes into the world from where? From, from the heavens, right? From where God dwells. Do you already hear a little bit of priestly analogy here? The priest is the one who is the only one who's allowed to go in where God dwells, and the priest is able to go in where God dwells and come out to meet and to serve the people. When he, the real high priest, comes, he comes from the presence of God into the world to bring God to the people. But listen the way that it plays out in Hebrews 10. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will. After saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The Old Testament priest had to be dressed for service. They had to be fitted and equipped to do the things that God had appointed them to do. In a much greater and more significant way, the high priest that God's people have always needed in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, was dressed and clothed for the service and the ministry that he would provide for God's people. And what God fitted him for was nothing less than a human nature and a human body so that the very thing that he was clothed with could equip him to be a sacrifice made on behalf of the people. God 
dresses and clothes his Old Testament priests to make them acceptable, to make them effective. He dresses and clothes his son in frail humanity so that he will be an effective and successful high priest. And then for all who come into union with Christ, you understand that in the same way that God was in the business of dressing and fitting out his people so that they would look differently in the old covenant, in the same way that he dressed and fitted out his son for the work of the ministry that he would do for the new covenant, you know that he is doing that with us as well, right? Ephesians 4 tells us to put off the old man. That's, that's clothing language. Put off the old man and to put on the new man, which is being renewed or recreated in the likeness of God. Galatians 3.27 For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So that like Christ, we can be accepted and welcomed into the very presence of God. Your obedience and my obedience is part of the way that God dresses and prepares us to move further in and ultimately one day to enjoy for all time being in the presence of God. That's part of what the close of Revelation that we read this morning is going at. The ones who are outside of the life of God, let them persist. Let them continue. But the ones who have been brought and called by Christ into union with him, let him continue in his obedience and in his sanctification. Let him continue in holiness because he, they will be the ones who eat from the tree of life. They will be the ones who drink and are satisfied. They will be the ones who are able to welcome the bridegroom when he comes. The Lord's people hear and obey. The Lord clothes his people for the service that he has called them to. And then number three, one last thing that we might say is that all of this, by the time we get to the end of chapter 39, we find hints that what God is doing with his people through this tabernacle work is nothing less than a new act of creation. Look with me in Exodus 39 at the very last verse, verse 43. Moses saw all the work and behold, they had done it. That's Genesis language. The Lord saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Do you hear that similarity? Moses saw all that they had done. The Lord saw all that he had made. 
And then notice how it ends. The chapter ends in, in chapter 39. Moses saw all that they had done, saw the work they had done, and behold, they had done it. Just as the Lord commanded this, they had done. So Moses blessed them. God, both in his creation of Adam and Eve, blesses them. And on the seventh day, God saw all that he had made. Behold, it was very good. And he blessed the Sabbath day, the seventh day, and made it holy. What is happening here as God is doing this work in and through and with his people is that God is remaking and reordering his world. He starts in Genesis 1 and 2 with the big things, with the cosmos, with the world, with the planet, with oceans, with land masses, with animals. And then in the middle, in the garden, he places those who are to be his image and likeness, Adam and Eve, to enjoy him, to serve him in his kingdom. Those people who were to serve and obey him, disobey him, and they wreck and mar this good creation that God has brought into existence. And in one sense, the rest of Scripture is a long storyline showing how God takes what we have ruined and how he remakes it into something good, something that he can bless, and he does it with the very people who have made a mess of the world to begin with. Big world moving into small people, and small people wreck the big world. Here, chapter 39 small people that God starts with, a new creation, and he's going to use these people to remake the entire world. That's what he's doing with Edgewood Baptist. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Paul will say elsewhere in Galatians that nothing is of any consequence other than a new creation in Christ Jesus. Have you ever thought about the fact that when God calls us to obedience and to obey him, that not only does he intend for our obedience to be the means by which we enjoy more of him, but in his wisdom and providence, he gives us the privilege of being his servants to remake the world as he sees fit. We are the beginning of a new creation that God will one day usher in in perfection. Paul says in Romans 8 that all of creation is waiting on what God is going to do with us. The universe is waiting for you and I to be perfected because the universe will not be perfected until we are. Small people at the center of God's plan to do big, miraculous, great works. Do not look lightly on your obedience and your service to your king. God is doing great eternal things even through the simplest acts of obedience. We ought to praise him for that. Bow with me and let's pray.
Father, when we see the heavens and we consider the works of your hands, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, what is man that you think of him? Or the son of man that you would visit him? Father, even more than that, to know that we as mankind, as humanity, not only have been made in your image and likeness, but that we have rebelled against you, and yet in your grace and mercy, you have redeemed and reconciled rebels to yourself so that rather than trying to work against you and in defiance to you, we can work with you. We can be the very instruments, the very servants that you use to accomplish your will in your creation. And Father, to give us that privilege in such a way that we actually find more joy in obedience is itself just another indication of how generous and good you are to your people. So Father, forgive us for seeing our acts of service, our obedience to your word and to your commands as a chore, as something that is burdensome. And we ask that you would so perfect in our hearts a love for you a love for Christ by your spirit that our love would be demonstrated by our obedience to your commands and that we would not find your commandments to be a burden. Do that here at Edgewood, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.